Take your Bibles, if you will, church, and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. The, uh, the idea for taking two weeks to work through this passage in Ephesians chapter 2 um, came somewhat out of frustration and somewhat out of inspiration. Um, but the inspiration was not mine. Um, you can pray for me. I'm going to be speaking this next Wednesday at a gathering of pastors down at First Baptist in Durham um, through the Pillar Network there, and I'm excited to do that. And so um, Andy Davis, the pastor, and I were talking a little bit, and then I went back and looked at his outline through the book of Ephesians. I'd been struggling with how to take what we find here in the latter part of chapter 2 and move from the theological uh, implications of that the application of that, and how to apply it to us here in Roxborough, how to apply it to me and Susan and my family and my church family and my community. And, and Andy, I realized as I looked, Andy had taken two weeks to preach this passage at First Baptist Durham. And so I said, shoot, if Andy can do it, I'm, I'm, I feel better about doing it myself. So he, his was the inspiration that I got to do that um, came from Andy. Now, anything that comes from this... Um, is not his fault, and I'm not going to give him credit either, okay, um, for doing that. So, um, take a look at the passage and follow along as I read. We looked at it last week. You've heard from it twice today um, through the praise team, and thank you guys for doing that. Ephesians chapters two, chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and preached to those and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place, For God by the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we do bless your name today and thank you that you have blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And you determined to do that, God, before the foundation of the world. You have chosen to call to yourself, Lord, people out of every tribe and tongue and nation and language, every ethnicity, every color. God, you have chosen to call them and draw them into yourself through Christ. Father, it is in Christ that the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. And it is in Christ, Lord, that you are creating a new man, a new humanity for yourself, Lord, that one day will inhabit the new heaven and the new earth. 
God, thank you for that reality. Thank you for that vision. But Lord, we're not there yet. So we plead and pray for you to help us in this, God. And I do that in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I am an American. I'm an American. I am an American. I'm an American. I am 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 an American. I. 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 I am an American. I am an American. I am an American. I am American. I am American. I am an American. I'm an American. I'm an American. I am 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 an American. Post 9-11. That video was produced as a reminder for us as Americans of who we are. That video was produced as a reminder of a violent event that had consequences. Consequences that were in some ways fairly temporal, but in some ways changed our nation, in some ways changed the world. And, and I've never seen anything like it. Some of you maybe who lived, you know, if you're old enough to have experienced the event and maybe some of the aftermath of World War II, um, you might have said, I, see, I saw that, I saw something similar. 9-11 bound us together, galvanized our country in a way that like nothing I had ever seen in my lifetime. But it was temporary in many ways, right? There were more people in church. There were more people praying. There were more people coming together across ethnic and racial and socioeconomic lines than ever before. But it was temporary. It, it just didn't stick. It just didn't last. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians wants an even more diverse yet unified people because of a violent event to be able to stand up and say, I am the church. We are the church. The Apostle Paul wants us to look back at Calvary. Really, he wants us to look back before the foundation of the world. That God predetermined, called us, called the elect, if you want to use that terminology, to be before Him in holiness, not our own, but the holiness of Christ. Called us to be His children, not because we deserve that, but by His grace, right? We've seen that. God determined beforehand to change this world through a violent event. The death of His one and only Son on the cross. The death of His one and only Son on the cross as a substitute for rebels and sinners like Gerald Hodges and like you and me. 
to put his one and only son on the cross as a substitute for a rebel like me and you and others not like me and you and to bind us together in a supernatural organism called the church for his glory it's 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 amazing that's and last week we saw the reality of cultural and racial alienation that existed between Jew and Gentiles. And it's something that's, that's in many ways, something a lot of us cannot begin to identify with. But maybe some can. We saw that reality of racial and cultural alienation was rooted in a spiritual alienation, right? That's what we've sung about. That what, that's what we've said. Remember that at one time, you, and he's talking to Gentiles... And as I look around the room, I think we all fit that category in one way or another. I don't know of anyone in this room, and I don't know you all. And so if you are of Jewish heritage, if you are a Jew by heritage, by your relationship to your forebearers, blood relationship, if you are such, then you're exempt from what I'm about to say. But all of the rest of us in this room are Gentiles. We're not Jews. And so Paul was writing to a world that was divided along those lines. Jews and everybody else, at least from the perspective of the Jews. And so he's writing into that context, into that relationship. And he says, so remember that you Gentiles were separated from Christ. That was not a part of your legacy. That was not a part of your heritage as in those promises given to Abraham and his descendants. You were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You weren't related to Abraham. There wasn't, there wasn't any Jewish blood in your veins. And he said also, you were strangers to the covenants of promise. Those covenants of promise about someone being on the throne in, 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 perpetually, that didn't apply to the Gentiles, he says. He said you were, you were separated. You were godless and hopeless apart from Christ. But now, amen, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near. So that's the spiritual reality that he says. Paul says something is different. In Christ, those who are separated and alienated are now brought in. Those who were hopeless and dead in their trespasses and sins are alive together with Christ, right? That's the gospel. That's the grace that we talk about and sing about and rest in. He is the one who brings this hopeless, godless situation to those who are outside of Christ, and he changes it. And how does he do it? Violently. <laughs> the wall is broken down by his blood shed on the cross. It's broken down by His blood shed on the cross. And He Himself, therefore, is the peace that binds together those who trust in Him. He Himself is our peace. So Jesus is the one that's broken down the dividing wall of hostility. He has accomplished reconciliation between God and man, vertically, and between man and men, horizontally. That's the spiritual reality that we rest in and read and trust in. It is not... The practical reality that most of us see and experience today. It's, an, it, it's a done but not yet deal. Just like our salvation is in some ways. We are saved. We are being saved. We will be saved. 
We are united in Christ as one new man in God's eyes. But that reconciliation effort, that work of being an ambassador, that work of going out and compelling others to be reconciled to Christ is ongoing, right? It is. And so realizing and recognizing that this reconciliation is accomplished, but it is not yet. How do we, what do we do about that? And guys, I have, I have struggled over, over this message for months, literally. Knowing that sooner or later we're coming to this and knowing that we're so far from it. We're so far from it. So how do we, how do we respond to this? How do we take all of this in? Well, Paul, I think, helps us when he says, remember. <laughs> he says it twice. Remember, remember what it is God has done for us in Christ. So let's begin there. All right. So if you look at your outline, remember the glory of God's multi-ethnic vision. That's the picture that he has for us here in Ephesians. He says that all of this is going to be brought together in Christ. This was God's plan from the beginning. One new man instead of two, and so making peace, he says in verse 17. Before that, though, he says that he is bringing all of this together in Christ, that he is bringing all of this under the rule and reign of Christ. All of this is going to be under him. All of this is a part of his purpose and his plan. It starts in Genesis 3, right? That in the one who would come, in the fruit, the seed that came from Eve, the serpent's head would be crushed. It goes on through the Genesis promises to Abraham. Through you, Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed. All the nations. Panta ethne that we see in Matthew chapter 28, where Jesus says, that's where I want you to go. Go into all the nations and make disciples. That's the picture of where we are going in Revelation chapter 5. As they sing their song of praise to the Lamb who has blood-bought people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. Worthy are you. And then in, Genesis, and then in Revelation 21 and 22, we, we were just there, right? This new heaven and this new earth recreated and populated by new people. A new humanity. That's God's vision for this amazing demonstration of His grace and His glory. Ah. Jarvis Williams is a professor at Southern Seminary, Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Listen carefully to what Dr. Williams says. By the way, he is African American. I'll make that relevant in just a second. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, God's kingdom is a multi-ethnic kingdom with a brown-skinned Jewish Messiah reigning as king, filled with diverse people, with diverse dialects, with diverse stories, with people who have tasted by faith the salvation of the one God, the one Lord, the one Holy Spirit, people who have participated in the one baptism because of their participation in the death and resurrection of the one Christ. When they died to the world... To live a life devoted to the crucified and resurrected Jewish Messiah. These Jews and Gentiles redeemed by the blood of Christ, walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, spirit empowered love for their neighbors inside the church and their neighbors outside the church. 
your neighbor is not just your Christian neighbor. That's what the kingdom of God is. We have surrendered our lives. If, if, if we're in Christ, if you're in Christ today, you have surrendered your life to a brown-skinned Jewish Messiah. He's not white. And so our whole perspective sometimes needs to be shaken a little bit. And we need to just allow the biblical truth of God's amazing redemptive story to, to sink in. To sink in. And I understand James Taylor has this beautiful song on a Christmas album about children and the way they see Jesus. And I'm not going to sing it to you. But the olive-skinned children see him as olive-skinned. And the children with slanted eyes see him as a slanted-eyed Jesus. And the children with dark skin see him as dark. You get the picture. But if we understand that Jesus is, as the Scripture tells us he is, the human son of, Jewish, of a Jewish woman, that, that he's a Jewish man. And he walked and lived with Jewish people under the oppressive hand of the Roman government of his day. And much of what he teach and taught comes out of that context. And so as we see that, then we begin to recognize, wait a minute, Jesus is speaking as a minority. He's coming to us from a perspective that we as white Anglos may not sometimes grasp and understand. And it's important that we do recognize the reality of God's wonderful vision for a multi-ethnic kingdom, but also recognize the reality of this present evil age that we live in. Paul makes that clear in Galatians chapter 1. The Lord Jesus Christ, he says, gave himself up for our sins to deliver us, listen to this, from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. This present evil age is the age in the world that's being remade in Christ, right? It's the picture of what we see that one day it will be in Revelation 21 and 22, but we're not there yet, right? This present evil age is one that is broken and cursed by sin. That's the reason the Bible says it needs to be made new. This is not a good place right now. And it's not home right now. And we don't need to be getting too awfully comfortable here for that very reason. But because it is the present evil age and because we are here, oh wow, we've got to be careful, guys. Because its influence is powerful. It is powerful. This present evil age consists of lies that are spoken and believed, who comes from the father of lies, who is Lord over it. It comes from false ideas and false philosophies that the Apostle Paul tells us that we can be taken captive by. It's a false, it's, it's a broken evil age that consists of corrupt earthly systems and corrupt earthly authorities. And this broken sinful world is led by the father of lies. It is led by Satan and he delights in lies and he, he delights in division and he delights in tearing down and attacking all that God is and does. This present, present evil age with Satan, the world, and the flesh lined up against a believer, impact us personally every single day, whether we recognize it or not. And they impact our community, and they impact our church, and they impact our country and our world. And, and it's important that we see that. This present evil age has a past. And that past continues to impact today. And we need to recognize that. So let's... 
let's just think for a second. One of the most recent skirmishes that's being publicized. I'll just ask you, do you side with Neil Young or Joe Rogan? Do you do you side with India Aria or do you side with Spotify in that? How do you feel about that? And how do you feel about those who differ from you in how you feel about that? Do you see January 6th of last year as an insurrection or as an opportunity to exercise free speech? How do you feel about that? And how do you feel about those who don't feel the same way? How do you feel about Michael Brown's death in Ferguson or Tamir Rice in Cleveland? How do you feel about Walter Scott in Charleston or Alton Sterling in Baton Rouge or Philandro Castile in St. Paul or George Floyd in Minneapolis? How do you feel about those? And how do you feel about those who feel differently from you? How do you feel about 23 Latinos gunned down in a Walmart in El Paso, Texas and 23 others injured by a white supremacist? How do you feel about that? How do you feel about others who would feel differently from you about that? How do you feel about Keona Mahali being shot down in Baltimore, a police officer, or Marlene Ritmanick in Illinois? Or how do you feel about that armed sniper who, who shot down five police officers in Dallas with the goal of killing as many as he could? How do you feel and respond to that? And how do you feel about those who might feel differently than you do? Do you get where I'm going with this? Do you see how divided, how easy that is, how subtle it is? Do you see what this dark, fallen world can do to us who claim and say we are followers of Christ? How do you feel about wearing a mask? And how do you feel about those that don't? How do you feel about getting the vaccine? And how do you feel about those that don't see it the same way as you do? What about those who get their news from Fox? Or those who listen to NPR? How do you feel about those that feel differently than you? So you see, this, this, is, this, is, this is about black and white. This is about race. But it goes way, way beyond that. Do you get it? It goes into politics. It goes into economics. It goes into medical. It goes into cultural differences between us. It goes to the fact that how in the world can people as diverse as that get ready to come to a table like this when you know somebody across the aisle feels differently than you do? You've seen their post. And you see them over there this morning. This is real stuff, people. So you see why more pastors are resigning over the last two years than ever before? Because it's killing many of them. They don't know how to shepherd their sheep through this mess. Now, praise God, I, this is absolute. I've never thought about that. Now, maybe it's because I've been in it a long time. And, you know, I'm a sheep too. <laughs> and, but regardless, the, 
the reality of this divisiveness and tribalism and the way it's infiltrated into the blood-bought body of Jesus is something we need to pay attention to in light of Ephesians chapter 2. Al Jazeera observed, and I quote, the media maelstroms shine a spotlight on the stunning profits that are generated from broadcasting polarizing content to the American public in the throes of an increasingly destructive cultural war. Now, how do you feel about the fact that I just quoted a Middle Eastern news source on that? Jamar Tisby, in his book, The Color of Compromise, says, Many white Christians viewed the killings that made national headlines as isolated events, and they could not understand why black people and other observers had such strong reactions. Evangelicals could agree that black people should be treated fairly and have all the civil rights of other citizens, but the root of the disagreement over racial issues lies deeper beneath the surface, he says. In a failure to acknowledge the subtler ways that racism operates today, and because of their religious beliefs being reinforced about accountability and individualism and rationalism and anti-structuralism, he writes, many white Christians wrongly assume that racism only includes overt acts, such as calling someone the N-word or expressly excluding black people from groups or organizations. Tisby says, it is good that black and white people generally can agree that racism of this type is wrong, and it usually elicits swift and unequivocal condemnation in a public discourse. But the longer arc of American history reveals that Christian complicity with racism does not always regard specific acts of bigotry. Being complicit only requires a muted response in the face of injustice or uncritical support of the status quo. What, what, is, what is Jamar saying there? Well, again, Dr. Williams says this, Jarvis Williams. The impact of racism on the church is evident by either a lack of ethnic diversity in certain congregations or a lack of sincere, familial, Christ-like love for those who are different ethnic groups within the body of Christ. The lack of racial harmony in the church, he says, is partly due to the culture's influence on Christians. And consequently, he says, many Christians form racist opinions toward ethnic groups simply because they don't have a biblical worldview of race. So we have a skewed view of a God-given gift, which is our different races. You see, the gospel is calling us, the Bible is not calling us to be colorblind, church. I see that, I hear that sometimes. That's not the answer. That's not biblical. He's not calling us to be colorblind. He's calling us to see through the glasses of the gospel. He's calling us to see and perceive what's going on around us through the reality of Ephesians. But we need to recognize this reality. We need to own it. We need to own it as individuals, as, as families sometimes. We need to own it as a church. We need to own it as a, con- as a convention, as a, the Southern Baptist Convention. We talk about this in our membership class, but some of you may not remember and some of you may not even know. The Southern Baptist Convention was formed because of slavery. That's why we exist. We exist because the Northern Baptist said it is not right or proper that slave owners should go to the mission field. 
And white Baptists said, we disagree. We want to go to the mission field and keep our slaves. And there was a division. And that's how the Southern Baptist Convention got started. That's, that's our heritage. And so, back in 1995, the Southern Baptist Convention passed a resolution. And it was much needed. It was well worded. Uh, I appreciate the resolution. And in that resolution, and I'm not going to read it to you, it's long. I can post it if you'd like to see it. All you got to do is pull it up. SBC Resolution on Slavery. It simply said that whereas the Southern Baptist Convention was started because of slavery, and whereas Southern Baptists were complicit in the reality of slavery, and whereas we wanted to go to the mission field and still keep our slaves here in the South, we acknowledge that. We acknowledge the deep hurt of that. We acknowledge the roots of that that go deeper than many of us as whites could understand. We repent of it. We ask for forgiveness for it. And we pledge as a convention to work toward racial reconciliation. That's a summary of it. But it's important we recognize that, that this dark world, this fallen world, this world that has been and is still under the, the rule of Satan, has impacted us as a convention. It's impacted us as, as folks in Person County. I mean, that's, that's a part of our heritage. I spent much longer than I needed to during my study time this week on the old Courier Times website. You can go on there and you can go back and see a lot of the old editions of the newspaper. But you can also go on back there, and if you want to, you can find the sales records of slaves in Orange and Person County and this surrounding area. You can find the register of sale from where human beings were sold in our county. I saw one six-year-old girl that was sold down on the... Actually, she was in Orange County. This is a reality, church. This is the reality of our history. This is the reality of our culture. And sometimes it's the reality in our own families. I've shared with many of you, I was born in Boone, I was raised in Boone, you know that. There weren't very many blacks in Boone, and the ones that were there were up on the mountain. They're up on the hill there outside of downtown. There were four blacks in my graduating class at Watauga High School, a class of, I think, 360 people. I played football with three guys that were black. So, you know, I, I can't say I, I was prejudiced in any way or racially biased in any way. I never was confronted with the opportunity to be that way. I didn't feel like. Susan shared with me last night a conversation that she had with my mother years ago. And I didn't, I didn't even remember this. I'm not sure I knew about it. Mom said, do you think I'm, I'm a racist? And so they were talking about that. It was a question that I, I praise God that my mom and dad did talk about things like that. So, I mean, that's kind of where I came from. I couldn't understand when I was in high school hearing about down in Charlotte fights and things going on in schools where integration was being forced. That was going on in the mid and late 70s. So that's kind of how I was raised. You know, the church that I pastored in Fort Worth was a, a blended multiracial church there in downtown Fort Worth. Gail will remember this. I asked the search committee. We're sitting in the old office. I could see it like it was yesterday. Sitting there in the search committee. First time I'd ever sit down and talk to the search committee here at Westwood Baptist. We're just talking about different things. And I asked the question, if I'm out knocking on doors in the neighborhood inviting people to Westwood, how do I respond when I knock on the door of a black person? What do I say? And we talked about that. 
And there are a lot of hills that I don't think are worthy to die on, but that was one that I was willing to die on. That was just, that was just where I was coming from in that regard. And so over the years, you know, our church has dealt with that. When the first black family that joined our church did so on a Sunday morning, it took about five minutes for the rest of Roxburgh to hear about it. I'm not exaggerating. We had one member stand up and storm out and left the church over it. He left before he could be disciplined, which the process was in place. I just say that these things aren't, these aren't foreign to us here at Westwood. I praise God for his faithfulness to this church. But as we look around, everybody's like us. Right? Now, the goal of diversity, the goal of ethnic diversity in the minds of many is something we need to be careful of. Because as we realize we're in the reality of this dark and fallen world and how we relate to our our African-American brothers and sisters around us, our neighbors around us, uh, the Hispanics that are around us. Listen, we, we fought some of these battles and dealt with some of these issues when we first started a Hispanic mission here that met across the way. We, didn't, we had people in the church that didn't like the fact that they were here, quite frankly. We just had to deal with that and deal with it in a, in a biblically solid, robust way. And I, I praise God... I, He led us to do that. But it's important that we recognize that history and recognize that reality. There was a member of our church who used to own this trailer park back here. I was walking back there one day. It used to be woods and everything back there behind it. It was very different than it is now. I walked back there to the edge of the church property, and there were no trespassing signs put up on the trees coming into the church property. What? Where, where did those come from, I ask? And it was not church action, okay? It was not something that was done by this church, but it was done by a member of this church. And we dealt with, and I believe in some ways still do, deal with the roots of that prejudice. Of that racial reality. Now praise God for the bridges that have been and are being built. But church, it's important that we recognize we're not immune from this. And here's the deal. I don't know what I don't know about how some of those black neighbors back there would have felt about that. I don't know how they felt about it because I'm not that color. Right? Can we at least acknowledge that much? That I don't know what I don't know. And sometimes I don't even know what questions to ask. And so what do I do? I just avoid it altogether. I don't get in a situation where I need to ask a black neighbor about what it's like to be black in my neighborhood. Or I don't talk to a Hispanic brother about what it's like to be seen in a different light than the majority of the population of this county. And that's where we fail. That's the first place that we fail sometimes. It's just in an unwillingness to have those conversations. So that's, that's the reality that's a part of who, who I am, who we are, who our community is. Gallows Hill here in Roxborough is called that for a reason. And so it's not heritage, it's hate. It's not just the way I was raised. 
That's not an excuse for the sin. And so it's important that we, that we recognize that, that we talk about that. A little book that I have, it's, it's out there in the bookstore talking about the body of Christ here. The author says, we don't know how to build a multi-ethnic church because we don't live multi-ethnic lives. That's the reality for many of us. We don't know how to include different economic classes because they can't be found in our neighborhoods. And we don't know how to prioritize our shared unity in Christ because we're accustomed to deserving the physical differences. As Jason read, we're, we, we see with eyes of flesh, not with spiritual eyes. And when a church follows the patterns of the world, it does not get noticed by the world. That's the deal. This supernatural unity and this amazing grace-covered ethnic diversity... That is not really diversity for diversity's sake, but it's unity for the gospel's sake. This picture that we see in the scriptures, that's the model of the church that God has. And we don't want to follow the world's model for being diverse for diversity's sake. Duke University is diverse. Right? We can acknowledge that. University of North Carolina, they're diverse. Many of your workplaces are diverse. Is there unity there? See where I'm coming from? You can be you can you can be beside a different ethnic, different color, different socio, different sex, different gender, different understanding of gender. You can be seated beside someone there in your workplace, and that workplace is diverse, but you don't love that person necessarily. And you don't hang out with them, and you don't share life with them. So diversity for diversity's sake is not the point. The point is gospel. Reconciliation. Gospel reconciliation. And that's what's before us in the Scriptures, and that's what we've been called to. And we do that by remembering and church rejoicing in the reality of the triumph and the unity that Jesus has accomplished. We see it there in Ephesians. It's just as clear as the nose on our face. We were alienated. We were strangers. We were hopeless. But now we're no longer strangers. We're no longer aliens down in verse 19. We're fellow citizens with the saints. And we'll see next week that he's building something in and through that diversity, in and through that gospel unity. He's made us one. That's the reality of what Christ has done for us. That's who we are, church. And it's who we're called to be. And it is hard. It's so hard. How do I know that? Not just from the efforts that I make or don't, or the efforts that I make other believer, that I see other believers making or I don't. It's hard because it says so. That's, that's the point of Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 tell us that God is able to do more than we even ask for or think. It is rooted and grounded in His love. It is rooted and grounded in the fact that He's going to show off His church as a picture of His manifold glory. It's, it's the reality that we are now one in Christ. But guess what? <laughs> I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you've been called. With humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul says it is not easy. He says, you put off the old self and put on the new later on in chapter 4. You put away falsehood. You put away anger. You put away malice. You put away all those things that are a part of our former self. And we walk in the freedom that is ours in Christ. 
So God is calling us to be a church of racially diverse? Yes. But it's a gospel-centered unity. It's not just an agreement that we need to get along with others, which we do. That's a part of what it means to be an ambassador for Christ. But he's calling us to be gospel people, gospel-centered people who see and approach all of life through gospel eyes, through Holy Spirit eyes, not through the flesh. So we don't regard anybody in that way. So again, it's the racially, ethnically diverse, beautiful unity that comes in the gospel. For in that the entire law is fulfilled, Paul says in Galatians 13. That law is love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's that simple. And it is that difficult. It is that difficult. Sounds simple, right? If it were easy, Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 wouldn't be here. If it were easy, everything in Romans 12 and following would not be there. If it were easy, we wouldn't need Jesus to die on the cross himself and shed his blood to tear down the wall. And so, remember and rejoice in that reality. And just resolve ourselves to be committed to the ministry of reconciliation. Jason, we were talking about it. Jason, JT, and I were talking in the office this week about it. We were kind of walking through this whole sermon. Um, Just what it means to be involved in the ministry of reconciliation. It's our calling as ambassadors of Christ. As ambassadors, we don't choose our agenda, do we? The ambassadors that represent the United States in various countries, they don't choose what they do that day. They don't choose what they say when they go in and speak to that other leader. That's given to them by our government. That's given to them because they are American ambassadors of the United States of America. And so who they are and what they say is based on that identity. How much more for us who are in Christ? How much more for us who are in Christ? So, so what does that look like? How do we, how do we do this? I, I'm telling you, it's um, it is a challenge. It is a challenge. I've I've attempted to have conversations even over the last couple of weeks with black neighbors, and in some cases they're as hesitant to talk about that as as I am. It's like I don't know. I don't think we want to open that can of worms, do we? Yeah, as a matter of fact, I do. I do want to open that can of worms. I do want to talk about that. So how do we develop? How do, how do we start here? First, let me just, let's just do this. Let the Bible be the means by which we develop and build these relationships and have these conversations. By that I mean be willing to build a bridge and speak to someone who's different from you. Different ethnically, racially. Let's, let's get out of our little conclave and circle of comfort. Just take the initiative in that way. If you work in a workplace that is diverse, <laughs> flying all kinds of flags, and claiming all kinds of identities, praise God He's got you there. Right? He's got you there with the truth. He's got you there with Jesus. So begin to have those conversations. Let the Bible be the way you see others. Let the, the Scriptures guide that. See them not with eyes of flesh, but with the eyes of the Gospel. And then let the Bible be your script. 
It's not up to Fox. It's not up to the Democrats. It's not up to the Republicans to decide how we're to believe about things. That's the world's way. That's not the gospel way. One-on-one conversations. Conversations where we listen more than we talk. Conversations where we let the Scriptures guide us and direct us. The Gospel Coalition published a couple of years ago, 10 Steps for Interracial Relationships that Advance the Gospel. I'll, I'll post it for you, but number one, pray. Number two, say yes to the opportunities for interracial activities. Number three, follow up one-on-one. Number four, Pray for gospel-centered pastors in the city. Number five, look for non-political ways to bless elected officials. For instance, just saying, hey, I just want you to know I'm praying for you today. We have county commissioners and city councilmen of color. Let them know you're praying for them. Let them know our church is praying for them. Do that. Listen to interracial friends. Just see what's going on in other people's lives. Do normal stuff together. Take risk. Work on common initiatives. John MacArthur says in his book, Bloodlines, blood-bought ethnic and racial diversity and harmony is for the glory of God through Christ. It's for the glory of God through Christ. So let's just at least have our eyes open to these realities. Be humble enough to say, I don't really know why I feel the way I feel. And I really don't know the way you feel you do if it's a, a neighbor of color or differences. But I know God is at work. Church, I believe that with all my heart. I know God is at work. I've been saying this for 31 years. There's a reason that this church is on this corner with the neighbors that we have. In the community where we are. And and that reason is to, to build the kingdom of God. To do it one individual, one family, one community at a time. And so let's resolve ourselves to to be about that task and be focused on that. To love our neighbors as ourselves and to see that God is bringing neighbors to us. He's bringing Afghan neighbors to us that we could never reach in another way. He's bringing Hispanic neighbors to us in ways that we can't imagine. He's bringing neighbors to us from, from all cultures and places. Now, they may not all be in the 27573 zip code, but they're close enough that it's easy to reach out and easy to build those relationships. So let's just pray for God to have his way with us as a church, for him to have his way with us as individuals and his families, so that we could be a part of being a minister of reconciliation, being a genuine, gospel-centered, gospel-rooted ambassador for Christ. Can you, would you join me in praying for that and moving in that direction? And I don't know all the ways and steps that God might lead us to do that. But just to be willing to say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Now, as I close, we're getting ready to come to the table right now in just a minute. I wasn't just, I was, I was serious as a stroke just a second ago. Is there right now in your heart some kind of animosity, some kind of wall, division that you've built up for a brother or sister over here that just doesn't see that issue the same way you do? And you're holding something in your heart because of that. If that's the case, you need to do business with the Lord right now, and you may need to do business with that person before you come to this table. Is there there just unconfessed sin? Is there an unwillingness on my part? Am I just going to staunch up on my back and get stiff in my neck and say, yeah, it's just the way I was raised. 
Don't come. Don't come. What a great opportunity it is. What a great picture it is of just how gracious and good God is to us. And how what He's going to do for us when we gather around that wedding banquet table in that new heaven and new earth with people from every tribe and tongue and nation, that they won't speak our language. They won't sing in the same language we do. Now, I believe with all my heart that by the work of God's grace and the work of the Holy Spirit, we'll understand it, but it'll be different. It'll be different. It'll be a concophony of diversity in Christ. And it'll be gorgeous. It'll be beautiful. And this is to be just a a crumb of a taste of what that'll be. Let's pray together. Father God, thank You for Your Word today. Thank You that it is a lamp unto our feet. It's a light to our path that will direct us down this path that You've called us to follow as we build the kingdom and walk with Jesus, Lord, under His guidance, His leadership. Lord, I pray for us as a church as we do that. Father, I pray for our community. I pray for our neighbors behind us here in Pineview. I pray, Lord, for the opportunity that You give us through My Life Matters or other ministry opportunities to, to speak the gospel truth and to speak the light of Christ into situations with people that are different from us. God, multiply those, I pray. Multiply those opportunities for us as individuals and as a church. God, put us in those places where we're uncomfortable and then help us to trust you, Jesus, and to to just simply be led by your Spirit to be ministers of reconciliation, to be effective ambassadors for Christ. God, I pray that in the name of Jesus. Help us, I pray, be faithful in building up his kingdom. Father, thank You for the blood and the body of Jesus that was shed and broken for us to make us one. It was His blood that broke down the dividing wall of hostility. Father, keep that image, keep that truth burning and real in our hearts. Compel us in the way we live, love, and serve by that reality. So, Father, work in us and among us as we prepare to come to the table. And I pray that in Christ's name. Amen.